This episode is brought to you by Amazon.com. Go to this episode's page on Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Then shop like you regular do on Amazon, which is the place where everybody buys everything. Are there other stores? I don't think there are. So help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Again, go to this episode's page at Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. With a career that includes writing for David Letterman and Politically Incorrect, our first panelist has been with The Simpsons since 1998, as well as developed his own material for cable and broadcast networks. Please welcome Tim Long. Our last panelist is another Nickel Fellowship winner who went on to write the features... Air Force One, End of Days, and Hollow Man. In 2009, he created the ABC series Castle, now ending its fourth season. Please welcome Andrew Marlowe. Let's, uh, let's start with you, Tim. Um, I want to talk about... We have not, we've had a couple of Simpsons writers here, uh, so we know vaguely how the room works. Um, but what I want to talk about is before that, We've had a handful of late-night uh, writers, uh, but we haven't gotten to dig very deep with them. Tell us about your experience on Letterman. Where were you prior to that, and how does that show work? Um, through a series of terror and humiliation <laughs> is mostly the major emotions that are at work in any late-night show. It's just not a natural thing to put on a show at any sort of professional level five times a week. It just shouldn't happen, but somehow it does. Um, the first and greatest head writer at Letterman, uh, Meryl Marco, said that writing a nightly show was like chasing a truck downhill. Uh, you, you have to try, but you know you're never going to catch it. Um, and it's especially bad because, you know, Dave, for all his unbelievable talent, is incredibly demanding in terms of the quality and, more specifically, the, sor- the tone of the stuff he will do. I mean, there's a million wacky things that he will not do. Like, he's not going to dress up like Judge Ito. He's not going to do corny jokes like the other guy. I mean, that's not to say that he's better, but he just has a very specific sensibility. And, we can say it. We're all friends. Uh, Alan Thick, I'll just say it. <laughs> um, so it was, a, it was a place where... Well, when I got there in 95... I arrived, and there was a lot of figurative blood on the floor. There, the reason I got in there is because a lot of people have been fired, and it was made very clear to me that, you know, if after 13 weeks things weren't great with me, um, I could pack up my bags and go back to Canada. Wow. So but it was a big crop of new people? There were a lot of new people then, which was great, because it was a system that, while demanding, it also allowed a lot of patently unqualified people like me to come <laughs> aboard. Where were you coming from? Uh, my job before that had been politically incorrect with Bill Maher which was his job before, his uh, 
his show before Real Time. Um, and it was on Comedy Central. And before that, I was in magazines. So it was a very fast transition from pokey, post-collegiate, smoking a lot of dope, hanging out on 10th Street, to, holy crap, I'm on the hottest late-night show in the world. And it was terrifying, because I didn't know what I was doing. I, I saw that you were writing for Spy Magazine, which I want to tell you is one of my all-time favorite magazines. Oh, that was, that was actually my first... That was my entry, not only into comedy writing, into writing of any sort, but into this beautiful country we call America. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm one of those great comedy cliches. I'm a Canadian. Uh, thankfully, I'm not that other horrible cliche, Harvard Lampoon. <laughs> I'm one of the few people on The Simpsons. I feel like I've passed for years without having... I never even saw Harvard until like last year, and I just drove by on the way to a much far inferior college where I was visiting a friend. Um, but what was the question? It was about... Uh, let's, uh, well, let's, let's I'm go so back. angry about Harvard that I just lost my mind. We're going to spend another half hour on that. Do okay. you guys have opinions on Harvard? <laughs> Is, does no. Harvard bedevil the world of hours the way it does? There's a certain stream of people, and you just can't get away from them. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. <laughs> I have trouble with the Yaleys. The Harvard people seem and okay. Cornell, don't get me started. But it's, it's actually interesting that you bring it up, because I, I wonder... You know, Simpsons obviously has been around now for a while, but I, I wonder if that Harvard Lampoon comedy writer person is kind of fading away at this point. To a certain extent. I mean, they were, there was a period where they were just thick on the ground. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. A lot of them are unbelievably talented, but at the same time, it just felt like... I spent about a year into The Simpsons, I was like, I can't hear any more about Fool's Week 1988. <laughs> just so much talk about the castle and the dinners and... Um, I sort of feel like I'm Harvard class of 1986, <laughs> even though I never actually right. set foot in the place. Um, so but, how did you get involved with Spy? How did that become your American I, gig? Oh, okay. I was, a, uh, I'd written, I was at the University of Toronto. Any alumni? No. <laughs> um, no varsity blues in the house. Um, and I'd written for the school paper, uh, which is called the Varsity. And I wrote... I. I it quickly became clear to me that I loved writing, but I hated journalism. <laughs> I hated the, the, the harvesting of facts and the honest uh, retelling of them. So I uh, sort of, for some reason, was able to carve out a humor column at the paper, which I don't think they've had since. Um, Did they have one before? No, I don't think so either. What tone did that take? Just ridiculous and stupid, just unfair shots at the school president. and It, it was not highbrow stuff. Sure. But I managed to... I did um, send some of these columns down to Spy Magazine, mm -hmm. which, at, which was at the time run by a Canadian, this guy named Graydon Carter, who now uh, runs Vanity Fair, so it was sort of a Canadian underground railroad, except the other direction. And, uh, and they were gracious enough to give me an unpaid... No, it was a $50 a week internship, which I couldn't take the money because I was illegal. So it was a $0 a week internship. Um, and uh, I'm legal now, so don't bother Where? reporting me. Where were they based? Uh, they were based in Union Square in New York City, which was the thrilling, thrilling, thrilling thing. Um, and so I did uh, not one but two summer internships there. And a, a lot of people who were there are now spread like the wind throughout television. There's a guy, I, one of the guys in my intern class was this guy named Louis Theroux. I don't know if you know him. He has a really funny TV show in England um, called Wild Weekends with Louis Theroux. It just, he's just great. Um, and a bunch of people have written for Frasier and, and countless other shows. And, um, so I was lucky in that respect. Paul Sims was there who started News Radio. It was, it was a really good crop of people. I mean, 
Uh, and then how did you segue into television writing from there? Well, the, the, the magazine was losing money hand over fist, and we all knew it was going to close, so there was a lot of work we all put in into putting together TV packets. And at the time, when we should have been doing our jobs, um, and at the time, just all these new shows were cropping up. The Conan show started, I think, in 93. Um, the CBS Letterman show started in 93. Um, the Chevy Chase show looked like it was going to be a huge hit, so we were all looking forward to applying there. Um, Bill Maher. Uh, Michael Moore had a show called TV Nation. So it was just one of those periods where... Uh, it felt like the merry-go-round was slowing down just enough for us to get on. Mm-hmm. So we all put together our little sketch packets and the like, and a couple of people before me got onto the Bill Maher show, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Kelly, who actually still works for the Bill Maher show and has done tons of other stuff. Um, he got on to the Bill Maher show, and then I submitted a packet and got on there, and that was my first TV gig. So there was no thought uh, when you were getting together this material of going into narrative television it was all uh, late night or this kind of magazine style show you know it's funny you should say that I, I it never really crossed my mind and i think that was just a failure of imagination <laughs> on my part um at the time we were in new york and we didn't really we thought of mm-hmm. narrative shows as much as we loved seinfeld or whatever was on at the time it just felt like it was out there and we didn't know anybody who was on those shows and it felt like i mean sometimes late night tv seems a little dreary now but at the time it could not have seemed more exciting <laughs> That's great. Uh, didn't answer my question, but we'll pick up there when we come back. Because <laughs> I know we, we want to get to everyone. And, and while we're on the subject, let's talk about breaking in. Uh, where did you come from, Terry? You were doing these short films that led to the uh, fellowship? Well, actually, um, I, I started writing in the 90s after my kids started nursery school. I had actually changed careers. What were you doing before? Um, my very first job in the industry was working at ABC Broadcast Standards, and I was an intern there, and I got to work on every show that was on ABC at the time. But my favorite breaking in story, this was my very first day of work in Hollywood at ABC. I walk in, and they say, okay, we're going to send you over to DePatty Freeling, and we want you to write down every act of violence in a Pink Panther cartoon. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I had to watch oh my 200 Pink Panther cartoons and write down every act of violence because it was, it was you know, the FCC and the NAB and the Action for Children's Television were really uh, at their height right at that point. And um, so that was my very first job in show business. Oh, wow. And um, that Fritz Freeling came in and sat next to me and started yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a great thing that it was Fritz Freeling. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> that's really cool. And I love Pink Panther cartoons, so I said, this is the greatest work in the world. <laughs> uh, had you written before that? Uh, you know, as No, a I, I actually didn't start out as a writer. I started out thinking that I was going to be an executive. Really? So I was on that. You were attracted to the entertainment industry. I was attracted clearly. to the entertainment industry. and You, know, I you was came a- back from the dark side. You were going to be an executive? <laughs> <laughs> that looked nice to me. They wore great shoes and suits. And <laughs> nice offices. <laughs> um, and it seemed like you didn't actually have to do the work. You just had to tell people how to do the work. <laughs> Ooh. Wow. Um, is that an accurate... I, I'm curious. I know, uh, I, I, from all three of you, is that an accurate assessment of a television executive? I think it's more complex than that. <laughs> there is an element of it where they do... You know, they they do share their opinions, but and, everybody's trying to make the best TV show possible. Not at Fox. And, there, and there's 
See, I, I, I'm assuming some of the people I, I, I work with are going to listen to the podcast. So. Oh, he's Simpsons. Well, I they, think my they, career is over anyway. anyway. <laughs> no, Fox is full of good people. We're all trying to do the best job we can. <laughs> <laughs> that won't show up on the podcast. <laughs> no, but there are people who, you know, who are you know, two or three years out of, out of college who are in the junior executive positions who really um, don't have the background, don't have the chops, and are reacting to it as a, an audience member, which can be useful if you're looking at it that way. Um, but it's when they start suggesting uh, craft-based approaches to how to solve the problems that it becomes problematic. <laughs> sure. Uh, right. And we'll, we'll talk about that yeah, as we move that. on. But uh, Terry, where do we leave off? Well, that was I had a really great time doing all of that. But then mm-hmm. um, I dropped out after a little while to have kids. I had twins. And so I wanted to stay home with them. And then it was time to go back to work. So I decided to resurrect a career as a writer, at least give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just started writing a lot of specs. I wrote a lot of spec television shows. And I wrote a couple of spec screenplays. And I entered every contest that there was out there. Hmm. And um, so that reentry was just one of my first scripts, when the Nickel Fellowship, oh, wow. which is and a it was huge, an original script. It was right? an original That's what script. Nickel does. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Nickel Fellowship because it's still around, right? Oh, the Nickel Fellowship is a huge launching pad for writers trying to get in the business. Um, it's the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and it is uh, money that was. Uh, put in there by Don and G. Nickel. He was the one who originated Three's Company in England, and he and his wife, Dee, made enough money to be able to um, actually financially help new writers in the business. And that's what the fellowship is for. And it's it's probably one of the uh, most wonderful fellowships out there because you don't become indentured to them if you win. The, uh, after you write a screenplay of your own choosing, whatever it is, and you enter it, they don't look at your names on the script. They just choose by whatever scripts the committees like the best. So it's um, blind choices on just quality writing. And then when you win, you spend the next year with the money that they give you, which I think is $35,000 now. And when you're just starting out, that is a lot of money. Um, to write, (laughs) to write. And, you know, you just, you have to do that for them and you just check in with them and you write, but it is so high profile that it launches careers. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what was the script that you wrote that got their attention? Uh, the script that I wrote was called bed warmer. It was a romantic fantasy, which is my favorite thing to write still. Tell, tell us about it. Uh, it's kind of dated now. <laughs> and, uh, this was the early 90s? Is that yeah. Right? Yeah. It was... Um, I, I just was it about think... MC Hammer? <laughs> I don't understand how it's dated. <laughs> no, it was about Debbie Gibson. No, it was... Um, no, she's back, isn't she? She's... She is, and she's here. <laughs> Some of it... <laughs> She's on Celebrity Apprentice now. Um, She's a PA. <laughs> it was it was about uh, a woman who receives a legacy from her great 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 grandmother, thirteen generations back, who was a witch, and it. Is uh, she's just going through a divorce, the woman who receives this legacy, and it turns out this 17th century bed warmer is the perfect man. But she's the first one in all of her ancestry to receive it that hasn't had children. And it turns out that she's also 13th in a long line of women, all of whom have, all of whom have been unlucky in love. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, is this the sort of thing that you were reading at the time? Is this the sort of thing you're into? I've always been into sci-fi and fantasy. Okay. Sci-fi and fantasy are my favorite things to read. So when it came time to start writing your scripts, obviously you knew the language of it having been around yeah. them uh, in your previous occupations. Uh, you immediately embraced this kind of uh, genre writing. Yeah. You did. Uh, what were some of the other scripts that you turned out in that time? And you did TV specs as well, you said. I did TV specs, um, and I won't tell you what they were because that will date me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, Well, just having written specs for existing shows well, like, dates us. For existing, yeah, exactly. You know, people don't really do that anymore. I know. I, I yeah, think I sure. did a lot of half-hour comedies because mm-hmm. that's where I was getting a lot of encouragement. And, you know, I had got... the Okay, this is, this is pertinent to Castle. The very first spec TV script that I wrote was a Moonlighting. Sure. <laughs> uh, and was it... How, how did you go about attacking that script? You know, did you immerse yourself in the show like a lot of people do? I did. I immersed did myself in the show. Uh, but I was watching it anyway. I was immersing mm-hmm. myself in the show, and I managed to find scripts, okay. ask people that I knew. You know, because I had been um, in the other side of the business before, I had contacts in the business, and I said, I'm doing this. Can I get uh, moonlighting scripts? Mm-hmm. And I, I read them all, and I recorded episodes on my <laughs> <laughs> on my video recorder. Sure. <laughs> Stenograph machine. (laughs) I typed them as they played. Um, Uh, Honestly, though, did you take them apart in any way, or did you just kind of immerse yourself in watching them? No, I I took them apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And tell us about that process, because I think it's something that comes up here quite a bit. We don't really ever dig into it. What are you actually looking for during that? um, Or learning for that? You're looking for how they build the mystery, in the show for something like that. Um, you're looking for the things that the characters say in every episode. You're looking for the path that the characters have taken from the beginning to where you're at now. You try to keep up as much with where the show is at currently as you possibly can. So if people are reading it, they're not reading something that feels old. And um, just it's... Um, Breaking down the dramatic, the dramatic thrust of the teleplay, mm-hmm. yeah, all of those things, and it's it's a valuable thing. I mean, it's something that's easier to do now than ever. But as far as learning that story structure, at, well, at, at, at what stage were you writing those? Spe- I love that show, and I, but it kind of went off the rails the last. <laughs> I mean, affectionately, yeah. but the two characters got together, and then they started to have a lot of dream episodes. And I understand there was a lot of craziness behind the scenes. Yeah, was it hard to? At what stage of the show's development did you write that spec? And it, was it alarming to tune in and see the show had gone crazy? I think it was before I wrote it before it went crazy, when it was still pretty much on mark before uh, Dave and Maddie had slept together. Yeah, that was sort of their jump the shark moment. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Uh, we're reminded of that constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was my first spec, and it got me my first agent. And, and, and oh, it, was, uh, it was a really... Uh, Great experience for well, me. Let, let's talk about that for a second. How did, did you send it out to agents? Did you know people in the industry already? Because I knew been people there? in the industry already, mm-hmm. and I talked to my friends who were writers, and I said, I have this spec that I've written. 
would you help me by recommending me to your agent? Mm -hmm. Because having been on the other side, I knew that nobody would read anything unless somebody they knew recommended it. And I knew that I could go through attorneys if I needed to, that that's sometimes an easier in than getting to an agent if you mm -hmm. hire an attorney and they help you find an agent because then, you know, the people who are reading feel legally covered and they know the attorney usually. So it's all about, you know, over and over again, relationships and um, putting yourself out there and uh, just keep going. Because there were people who said no to me. Of course, there's always people who say no to you. And I, sure. they're no longer my friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's a healthy way to look at it. Yeah. Um, let's, let's pick up there after the uh, Nickel Fellowship when we come back. Uh, but Andrew... Uh, how does this compare to your experience, again, having won the same uh, fellowship? I think everybody's experience breaking in, everybody ends up having a, a unique story, but uh, oftentimes it comes down to a piece of material that gets you noticed. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, it was coming out of USC. I went there for the graduate screenwriting program there. So I had, you know, whatever formal training. And, you know, I didn't get into Harvard, so I had to do something. <laughs> um, so I went to SC, had, had a really good experience there, and came out with um, a, a, a script that uh, I was pretty happy with, and, and that also won the Nickel Fellowship. And for those of you who don't know, that's where Terry and I met. And, and We uh, won the same year. Yeah, and we ended up getting married. Was there like a drunken cocktail party for the winners? That... <laughs> yeah, how many marriages came out of that? And how many divorces? It was, it was very much like Fool's Week, 1986. <laughs> um, Except there were women. <laughs> We, we haven't had a lot of uh, film school writers in here. I'm curious about that experience. What kind of uh, paces did they put you through? How did they teach you to write scripts? They took a very craft-based approach. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you talk about taking things apart. We had a lot of classes in how to um, take things apart where we broke movies down uh, to their fundamentals. We took a look at what makes a great scene, you know, the, the basic building blocks of drama. Who's oh, your good. Main what makes a great scene, finally? <laughs> Who is your main character? What do they want? Why are they having trouble getting it? What are the obstacles that they're overcoming? Um, you know, that you have a point of view when you're coming to the scene or, or your, your character has a point of view and you're following that point of view and getting the audience invested in that. Uh, and, and they started with the fundamental building blocks and, and built basically out from there, from a scene to a sequence to, to the entire script. Uh, so it was a valuable experience. Um, I think that those sorts of schools can teach you the craft, but you, you need to have the innate spark. And there are people who are, uh, you know, who came out of there with um, a decent understanding or knowledge of craft, but they didn't have the spark for the writing. Um, and I think uh, a program like that can save you an enormous amount of time of flailing about and discovering those things that, you know, um, a, a lot of folks do. And, and I would assume that when you have late night training, and you're doing those bits that you learn a lot from each bit. It's like, oh, that worked, that didn't work, that didn't have the, the dramatic thrust that we needed. Yeah, certainly it was a, that was one of the great things about the show is you'd pitch something at 10.30, it would go into production, you'd rehearse it, and then it would go on the air at 5.30, and you would know, sometimes you learned very painfully that it wasn't going to work, and, because during the commercial break, Dave would stare at you. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the feedback, I mean, that's one of the frustrations of The Simpsons now. We have like a 10-month turnaround time, so, you know, you don't really... I mean, you have screenings and you have reads and things, but it's, it's not that immediate rush. Or, or but you don't have Bart Simpson just sitting there staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, we're doing the, skate, the, the skateboard gag again? Come on. <laughs> we just say that to each other. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, after the Nickel Fellowship, uh, I, I had uh, 
uh, script go out on spec that that actually got me other work. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up taking a lot of meetings. My script was well received, but it didn't sell. Uh, and, it was and too small. This was features. You this saw yourself features. as a feature yeah. writer at the time. This was features. And uh, I ended up taking a lot of meetings. And the great thing about meetings uh, then is that that was my um, entree into getting, getting to know everybody in the business. Because, yeah. you know, when I came out here, I didn't really know anybody in the business. So it was a lot of building those relationships. And there were a lot of people who I met who I got jobs from two, three, four years later because mm-hmm. they remembered me and they were tracking me in the business. So it was a lot of building those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I sold a big science fiction spec and then um, ended up pitching Air Force One. Uh, it was a pitch. Uh, getting Harrison Ford attached was very helpful to my career. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm actually curious about that. How long was that pitch, and how much does it resemble the movie we all saw? It's it's almost beat for beat. It's sort of eerie wow. when I go back and I look at the pitch documents. There, there are a couple things that are off, but um, for the most part, it, it is the movie. That yeah. So it was, it was pretty remarkable. It was it was a good one. Um, and from there, you know, um, it. Wrote a lot of a uh, lot of scripts. Some of them got made. Some of them didn't. Um, some of them uh, turned into really good movies, and some of them didn't. And that's <laughs> that's part of the business as well. Uh, and you know, the, the the strange thing about writing screenplays is that best case scenario, it's like it's like two years from the moment you have the idea to the moment you see it on screen, and that's the best case. You know, most of them drag on forever, and then finally the movie comes out. And you kind of get a weekend, and you're done, and then something else is out. <laughs> and so television had this incredible allure to me in that you could have an extended conversation with the culture. I, you know, the, the, the conversation with the culture that The Simpsons has had is a, a little bit daunting, 500 episodes. You know, but, uh, but to be, be able to be on you know, week after week and to be able to develop characters over a period of time uh, was really attractive to me. So... Mm-hmm. So I took a shot. And, well, well, let's and, talk about that as, the show. as long as we're here. Uh, I hate to ask where did the show come from, but where did the show come from? <laughs> well, it's about a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so I dug deep. <laughs> An incredibly handsome writer who beguiles the ladies. <laughs> so I made some of it up. <laughs> None that I can see. <laughs> um, where, where were you in features when uh, it came time to pitch? I was Castle? a little burned out. I, mm-hmm. I was a guy that they called to do um, punch-ups on action movies, okay. and I, I'd be writing the big action movies and you know, spend my days at Starbucks scratching my head, thinking, you know, should the character say, come on or let's go before the car blows up? <laughs> <laughs> what if he says both? Come on, let's go. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's art. But, but, but you get burned out in that spiral. You, you feel like you don't have anything new to say. And I, and I wanted to, to tackle something new and interesting and something that was a little bit more character-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I was approached um, by the company that actually did Air Force One. They were getting into television. They had a new executive there who had, uh, you know, great TV experience and great relationships over at ABC. ABC liked me for some reason because Air Force One played well in repeats. So, <laughs> so I went in and pitched an action show, and they're like, this is ABC. We don't do action shows. <laughs> oh, nobody told me. Okay. So then I went back and, and, and retooled the pitch, and, and um, I came in with five or six ideas, and I was talking to the executive, and I said, well, you know, I have these five or six ideas I'm really excited about. And uh, the executive said to me, which one do you like most? I said, the one that has the best shot of getting on TV. <laughs> 
show business. <laughs> passionate about all of them, but the one I'm most passionate about is the one that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an idea that had been floating around in my head since, um, since 9-11 when the folks came out here. You know, they said the events of 9-11 were unimaginable, and yet there were a bunch of spec. Um, scripts out here with that very same premise of flying planes in the buildings and they sent some folks from the military and the CIA out here to talk to screenwriters and I thought well maybe writers have a valuable point of view so what about a guy who's like you know Stephen King or James Patterson who spent his days writing about murder would he have an interesting point of view um, if you put him together with a cop And what I liked about that is a character who's approaching a procedural from a fundamentally different point of view than the cop is. They're approaching the procedural from the the point of view of what's the story? What's the story that could explain these events as opposed to here's the evidence, how do we figure out who's guilty from the evidence? And I thought, okay, so now I have two characters with fundamentally different point of view. That's conflict. That's fun. And having been a fan of Moonlighting, having been a fan of, you know, The Thin Man and, you know, the, the witty banter shows, it made sense to make it a female cop. And so from there, those were the building blocks that I started to um, put, put Castle together with. Interesting. Uh, so ABC, did, they bought it uh, on pitch. They bought it on pitch, um, and it was ABC Studio. Uh, usually go and you pitch to a studio, and then the studio then takes it around to the network. We went in, we pitched it to the network. Um, they didn't buy it in the room. I was uh, in the parking lot when I got the call. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was good. It was, it was really exciting. It was really exciting. Um, uh, so then um, you go through the process where you write a, a, a story arena, which is basically the four-page version of it, and then you write an outline, which is basically the 12-page version of the pilot. And along the way, we were getting closer and closer to the strike. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in the middle of starting to write the script when the strike happened, and the network dropped it. But um, the the studio decided <laughs> to keep it. And uh, after the strike, I finished the script and I turned it in, and the network picked it back up again. So uh-huh. we were we were very lucky there. But it was um, it was one that was almost you know orphaned by the strike. Huh. Um, but also coming out of the strike, everybody needed product. So so I think that they reembraced the things that were out there that they thought had a good shot. Um, and then, you know, once it was picked up, it's like a, a freight train that's going. Once you have a pilot that's picked up, you have to cast it. You're in a competitive position with all the other shows that are casting. You're all vying for the same talent. It's the same short list of people. And we just got very, very lucky to get two leads in it who had remarkable chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, because a show like this really lives and dies by those two characters. Sure. Uh, and we'll we'll pick up and talk about sort of the more nuts and bolts of of writing that pilot in a minute. Uh, but Terry, let's go back to you. Well, I just uh, I would just want yes. to add to what he said is is this is this is interesting is that we were both writing features, so we were both uh, sitting at home writing all day, and our life was basically we'd go in our offices in different parts of the house. We were shut ins. We were. <laughs> And then, and then um, this pilot got picked up, and, and that's about the point where I got involved, and um, it changed our lives completely. Mm-hmm. It just, our lives have not been the same ever since. How, how did it start? <laughs> what were the little things that actually did change? I mean, you were still going to your room, going to your offices to write. No, once, uh, once the show started, the thing that changed were the uh, sure. 14 to 16 <laughs> to 18 hour days that it had a little impact on the relationship. <laughs> oh, sure, once the show yeah. started. So once the show started. Have yeah. you guys written together before? We, we have written together before. Um, and Terry, is that fraught? 
It, 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 it is fraught. Terry and I actually, um, uh, we did a pilot for uh, NBC a few years back before, um, uh, b- before uh, I tackle Castle. Uh, and the writing process is very interesting. <laughs> we have tell, different processes. Tell us about it. Well, I, I, the most blatant thing is that he's got an internal process and I have an external process. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and all just, I want to just, all I just let me do, think about it. Let me, wanna, let me think about the problem. Why don't you talk about it with me? I don't know why you don't want to talk about it with me. Can... No, I've already thought of that. Why are we talking about that? <laughs> Just let me go off and think. So that's basically it. Um, and, and then I have to give her notes, and she's mad at me for three days. <laughs> and then I tell him I don't like that, and he says, too bad. He's <laughs> the boss. Um, tell, I'm curious, though. You're, you're running Castle. And how many episodes would you say you write in a season yourself? Um, uh, this, uh, usually two to three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you three. have this internal process, but you have a writer's room also, right? Yeah. Uh, how does it work? How are you as a, as a manager managing this group of writers? Uh, you know, they don't, really, they don't really teach management, so it's something oh. that you have to learn. And... My job keeps me away from the writer's room, so I have some really wonderful people on staff, some people who have been brought up in, in, within the TV universe who um, are very comfortable in the writer's room. I can, I can function pretty well in the writer's room when I'm giving feedback. When somebody's pitching to me, I can say, okay, here's what's working, here's what's not. Um, I don't know if I would have been a very good TV writer if I started there. Maybe I would have learned to think that way, and I would have learned to think externally. So part of the problem, or part of the issue maybe, just that having started out writing features on my own, I was used to being in my own head, and getting out of my own head is a challenge. But I, I think by nature I'm an introvert, and by nature Terry's an extrovert. But when you're in a room, you have to manage a lot of personalities, and some people are introverted, and they're the people who don't say anything for three hours because they're just sitting there thinking. And then they come up with a great idea three hours later when everybody's been going around in circles. <laughs> but we have um, a bathroom that says on it the idea room because <laughs> you're banging your head against something in the room and then somebody gets up and goes to the bathroom and comes back with the idea. Sometimes you actually have to walk away from the room yeah. to make it happen. And I think that mandatory breaks in the room are essential because you can get into a feedback loop. Um, but managing is a really interesting thing because writers by nature are... Um, not the most social best people at doing that so it's it's always a little you know it too is a little fraught but we have a really great group of people and um you know for the most part they're all mature adults and Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty easy to deal with i'm curious how you do it i mean well you mean writing no, the, like on The Simpsons. Well, I, it's funny you should say that because I had a similar experience going from Letterman to The Simpsons in that Letterman, even though you know, it was a collaborative thing, but it tended to be, for a long period, it was just everyone was writing alone in their room, in their office, and then handing in sheets of paper. And in fact, when I first got to The Letterman Show, the head writer just had these bins on his door marked top ten, remote ideas, you know, Rupert G ideas. And so you just write these sheets of paper and then you put them in the bin. And if you were not part of the sort of the producing team, you would just tune in at night to see if anything, any of those sheets had actually been produced. Um, and so it tended to, as you said, it tended to make you very introverted. But then when I went to The Simpsons, that's a very room based show. Um, and people I knew were saying that it changed my personality. I've just suddenly, I guess I became a whole different kind of asshole. I don't know. <laughs> A but loud one instead a of a much quiet louder one. one. Because you kind of had to be to survive. I mean, at the time, I mean, The Simpsons 
especially when I got there and, and to this day has had a really formidable writing staff um, with the likes. I don't know if you know who George Meyer is. He was sort of a TV legend, um, profiled in the New Yorker at one point as the funniest man in America. That wasn't so intimidating. Um, you know, Al Jean, Mike Reese, Matt Groening's always been around for a long time. Oh, I mean, not to mention James L. Brooks, multiple Oscar winner, who is still very involved in the show. So it was very intimidating. But at the same time, um, it was always... I was really struck and, and delighted when I got there by the fact that it was a very nurturing room and mistakes and bad pitches were not only uh, allowed but encouraged. Um, That's not something you expect from a lot of comedy rooms. Not I mean, we re- hear the opposite quite a bit. I mean, it, dep- it really depends. And I think I, it's, it's funny you should mention management because I feel like if... I've been on shows that have been really well run um, and shows that have been really badly run. And a well-run show allows the writers to feel safe, I think, and allows you to feel like – like poorly run shows feel like they're always behind the eight ball in terms of getting stuff done. And there's a feeling like if we don't get this done today, we're totally fucked because the network needs it and we're behind schedule. Or we've stayed up all night for three straight nights. And I don't know about drama, but like there, that's no way to write comedy if everyone is <laughs> – Tired and miserable. So it's it's no way to live. Yes, exactly. You know, and it's no way to make your your staff live. You know, and, and there's always, they, they should be able to go home to their families. Right, I mean, because, that's what recharges them. And they need to be able to like gather material. I mean, we yeah. write a show about a family, and so people have to go out and experience their family <laughs> in order to just get the raw material. You know, to to suck the blood from their relationships and then bring it back to the show. So yeah, when shows are well run, then you're people are allowed to have bad pitches and they're allowed mm-hmm. to. And you can go down blind avenues of story. You can spend a couple of days talking about a story that at the end of those two days you think, oh, yeah, this sucks, <laughs> and throw but it away. Bad pitches are often useful because yeah. something good comes from the bad. Um, you know, a, a lot of the most creative stuff started out as something that, you know, the person was a little bit embarrassed to come, come right. forward with. But if, if you say, look, you know, don't be embarrassed because it's going to lead to something and you're not shooting somebody down and saying, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's stupid, <laughs> uh, you know, then you can get to a, a moment of grace where you work that into something because there is a, a spark of genius or a spark of insight there mm-hmm. that really deserves to see the light of day with some nurturing. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, you need a jumping off point. And oftentimes, this is a bad idea, but provides that. Yeah, yeah a lot, I don't know about your, your room, but people <laughs> tend to start their pitches that way <laughs> in our room. Yeah. And we always say less uh, like there there is a tendency especially amongst new writers to say okay this is a bad idea and i know this won't work but and then i always say less preamble this isn't this isn't the declaration of independence just say it it's a great note and then and then you just say the stupid thing and you're like okay that's not stupid that's 90 percent stupid but there's 10 percent of there that we could really go from and that's really valuable totally I find that when people say okay this is totally crazy that's where the best ideas come from yeah um, Tim, tell us about your a little more about the transition from you know late night and uh, and the other show to the Simpsons. Uh, not just in you know the politics and the social aspect of the room, but in the actual writing. I mean, in terms of the actual writing, there was a giant hole in my career, which was story. Sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I'd, I'd written little remotes for Dave that had a narrative element to them, and and weirdly. On the best episodes of Letterman, there was kind of a story arc, even though Julia Roberts showed up in the middle of it. <laughs> like, you would watch the show and be like, okay, Dave invented a story. Like I, I feel were... that way about Julia Roberts' movies. There's <laughs> <laughs> much less story arc. And it's like, he, would, he was always conscious of, of creating a show, even though it was happening on the fly, that the show would have a certain narrative. Like, if something happened in the first act during the monologue, he would refer to it later, and it just felt like there was a coherence to it. 
Um, but certainly when I came to The Simpsons, I was lucky. I, again, it was a, one of the craziest things of blind luck. I didn't write a spec, and I was so proud of myself, but I really <laughs> should have because I didn't know anything about story. So where did the job come from? It happened because I had, again, I knew a couple guys. There, there tended to be a lot of burned-out <laughs> Letterman head writers. I was the head writer there for a year, mm-hmm. had gone to The Simpsons and, and managed to do pretty well. So, um, and, I went, and I went out... Uh, I heard that there was a spot open on The Simpsons, and I'd also heard from myself that I was very tired. <laughs> and so um, the guy who was running the show at the time, this guy named Mike Scully, he said, well, why don't you come out to L.A. and we'll have lunch and see if you're ready for the show. And he and I had lunch at Coogie's in Malibu. Right. And uh, we were talking about our... He grew up in, in Springfield, Massachusetts, weirdly, <laughs> and I grew up in Spelltown, Canada, and we were talking about snow. How no, what it was like to be in a snowbound environment during the winter, which is something that a lot of people here don't know about. And I was telling a story about how, I, and I said, you know, we had this thing that happened one time where we heard that this blizzard was coming, and all the kids were really excited because we thought we'd get off school the next day. Um, and we woke up the next day, and it was sunny, and we were like, oh, fuck. And so we all went to school, and as soon as we got there, the blizzard came, and we were trapped there overnight. <laughs> and I, I said that was kind of the central metaphor of my life. And he said, it's also something we could do on the show. And I hadn't said it as a pitch. I was just sort of kind of tap dancing and trying to get this guy to like me. Mm-hmm. But, and he said, we should do that. And I think that inadvertently became my first episode of The Simpsons. So, and that's, you know, so tell us about tackling that first script. Um, I got a lot of help. Um, you know, I pitched it out, and I didn't even really know. I just didn't know. In retrospect, it's embarrassing how little <laughs> I knew. But there was a very collaborative environment. I, you know, I pitched it as a single line. And then back then, we tended to break stories over the course of a whole week. So people okay. were like, well, then, first of all, they just wanted to know what happened in real life. Because even the craziest Simpsons episodes tend to be based on something that happened yeah in somebody's life. Like Mike Scully, for example, was caught choplifting one time when he was a kid, and, and he was really afraid that his mother would just yell at him, but instead his mother kind of froze him out. And, and it was, he still talks about it with chills in his voice, and, and that became one of the great yeah. Simpsons episodes ever. Um, and so there was a lot of nurturing, and I told him what really happened, and then we broke the story over the course of a week, uh, a lot of blind alleys, a lot of, okay, we think this is going to work, but it doesn't work. And then I was sent to write an outline over the course of about a week. And Simpsons outlines tend to be somewhere between 15 and 20 pages long. They're really extensive. Yeah. Um, and then Tell I brought your the, scripts. They can be, we read it about 45 pages. Oh, but you're double spaced. We are, I can't read, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're double spaced, yeah. And, but we, we write, I don't know about you guys, I think most shows, we write crazy long, and then yeah. we just cut, cut, yeah. cut. Um, and, of course, it seems like the amount of airtime that we're actually given is just cut back by a few seconds every year. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty soon it's just going to be Bart drawing on the blackboard, and that's going to be the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we write the outline, then you get tons of notes on that, and then you write the script. And you hand it in, and everyone says, great job, and then it gets rewritten. It just gets... It gets rewritten in the room, right? Oh, very heavily rewritten in the room. There's a... a Matt Selman, I don't know if he's ever done the... Oh, he was here a couple weeks ago. Yeah. He says that, like, if it's a great script, only 80% of it gets cut. Like, that... It just is given that it'll be totally changed. And it gets rewritten in the room, um, and you just have to learn to accept that. And, was that and, shocking for you, your first time through? You know, it really was. It really was. Because there, at Letterman, there was really no time to rewrite, even if the stuff sucked. Um, whereas at the, <laughs> and, 
and also it was often great, not my stuff, but that was a good, that was a strong staff too. But yeah, it's it's sort of I feel like I started off a little thin skinned, and but I didn't say anything because I'm also a goddamn coward. But I've seen people at the show get real like storm out, drive home. You know, I feel like that's a real skill. Is just your the ability to understand that your stuff is going to get changed, and also sort of you have to have this blind faith that it's going to get better, even if it initially gets worse. Like, I'm sure you guys have had, I'm sure you've had writers who are just a pain in the ass, and you do not want to write with those people who are going to complain about every line that gets changed. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> well, I'm, a- I'm actually curious about that from the other side. You know, you guys hadn't, you, I'm sure you had a relationship with the network, having developed pilots or whatever before, but once Castle was sort of up and running, tell us about, you know, dealing with the network on it. Because they're here, you're getting notes, which I assume are sort of like the feature notes you got, but it's much more immediate, and they all comes much faster, and the thing, the whole thing moves much faster. You, you know, I, I, I've been one of those people who, who never minded notes as long as both sides are fundamentally making the same show. Mm-hmm. If you're making different shows, then it's it's like let's have a conversation, cut bait, and part ways. But if you're making the same show, then the notes are all designed to make it better, and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to take the specific note. Um, it really is an issue of what are they reacting to and is that the way I want them re- reacting? Because if, if you send a script over and they're not reacting to it the way you want it, them to react to it, chances are the American public is not going to either. So you need to listen to something. Yeah. Um, so I, I've never minded that and you know, for the most part uh, have had you know, decent relationships with the folks at the Studio Network. As long as you take the point of view that they're trying to be helpful in the process and not intrusive. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the notes that you get you think are ridiculous. Um, you know, we need the ABC color pop. We need um, the characters wearing this sort of thing. Even though she's a cop, you know, we need her wearing bright colors, stuff like that. But for their network, it's important and meaningful. And as long as you can find a way to accomplish the note without denigrating the character, then it's easy to do. And, and, and if you can't, then you have a frank conversation. But everybody wants the same thing. They, they, they want a great show. Some people are more articulate than others, and some people you have to be patient and let them just talk themselves into a spiral until they run out of steam and give up <laughs> when, you, when you haven't really said anything. One um, of the things that Andrew's really good at, and this is, this is something that I hold him in awe for, is listening to a network or studio executive talk, and they will talk for a long time, and then Andrew repeat back to them what they really meant <laughs> in very few words and they'll go yeah yeah that was it he's uh, kind of an executive whisper uh, <laughs> <laughs> i also find that the most valuable words you can say are okay we'll take a look at that because well, yeah, yeah, yeah but they're on to us <laughs> well we we had a great conversation here uh not too long ago about no saying no without no uh-huh. which i'll take a look at that was it for a while but i think people are getting savvier do you guys have a, a no without no <laughs> uh, I don't know. We're a little bit more frank about it. You know, if, if we're saying no, we're saying no for a reason. We talk about the reason. That's great. You know, here's, here's the reason why we don't think that that can work. Tell us where you're uncomfortable. Tell us why you're uncomfortable. Okay, we can address that in a different way. Or you're supposed to feel uncomfortable there. That's the intent of the scene. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's getting the intent of the script across to the audience. And if you use them as an audience and, and your audience doesn't get it, if your audience doesn't feel satisfied and you want them to feel satisfied... That's kind of something you have to pay attention to because, you know, you're not going to be there in every living room in the, in the United States to explain to them why they're watching it wrong. <laughs> but, I also, 
<laughs> but I, I find that off, the most maddening notes are the ones where people haven't thought through what they've said. Like, we can't have them uh, discover the bullet in Act 5 because the guy was killed with an ice pick. Like, there's just this feeling of, like, oh, you haven't thought through. You just said something off the top of your head. And it's insulting when you've thought about it a lot. And you, you've considered what they said two weeks ago, and you know why it can't work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are ways of dealing with that, too. <laughs> no, I see why you're having an issue there. I'm not sure that that's the right solution, but I understand that it's, it's falling flat. Let us take a look at it and see what we can deliver there so that the moment feels fulfilling. You know, something like that. You're getting hung up on the bullet. I'm just, you're getting hung up on the bullet in the ice pick. It's not about the bullet in the I'm ice pick. I'm just melting here. <laughs> you can Every be a writer's room should have that. Yeah, should have but, a recording but, but, of that. But that being said, it, it, it's because um, they should play that I'm, those lines at spas while people are getting massages. <laughs> it's so relaxing. <laughs> but 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 it's also um, I think a detriment to me when I'm, I'm working with uh, with my own writers because I don't have that level of ego involvement because it's just ink on the page and and I want it to be the best it can be and and the actors are going to fuck up the lines anyway so why are we being precious <laughs> no but but you know so it's like okay what do we do to make it better and and you know one of the things that I've had to train myself to do because when I deal with my own work it's like okay that's not working that's not working that's not working one of the, the things I've had to train myself to do is to to tell them the good stuff because when you're challenged and you're running, you know, when you're an accelerated post and you have a cut to and then you have to get to set to deal with a problem and then you have a network notes call and then you have a franchise meeting on, you know, the books and then you've got this, that, the other thing. It's really easy to sit there and say, OK, so here's what we need to do the script. Boom, 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 boom. And forget that somebody has spent, you know, 100 hours or, or more putting this thing together and they're really invested and you have to walk them through all the stuff that's really working and really great. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I've actually had to train myself to do uh, over the past four years because I kind of want to get to it and when people are giving me feedback, I kind of want them to get to it because it's like the stuff you're not talking about, I'm going to assume is, is, is good and fine. But, um, but we writers are also kind of a, a sensitive breed as well and, and, and need that feedback. And, and I haven't been as good as that as I, I would have liked to have been, and, it, and it's something I, I need to be aware of. But it makes it easy with the executives because when they start picking on stuff, I don't get wound up. Other people get wound up about it. Uh, it, it just sort of is what it is, and let's fix it. We'll be in the room listening on the phone, and Andrew will just be, like, calm talking, and we'll be like... <laughs> <laughs> That's only for the audience here. (laughs) Um, Tell us about the makeup of your room, levels of experience, what kind of personalities you have in there. Uh, Tim and then Andrew and Terry. Um, The Simpsons is one of those places where people tend to get there and don't leave, (laughs) Um, which is sort of unfortunate in terms of, uh, you know, fresh perspectives. We probably hire one new person a year for the most part. But, I mean, I've been at the show in one capacity or another since 1998, um, and I'm far from being the, the, the longest tenured writer. I mean, Al Jean, who runs the show, was there at the beginning. You know, Matt Groening, James L. Brooks, they've all been there for a long Aren't time. are you guys out of ideas? Because everything we think of, you guys have done. <laughs> what about? That's funny, because we thought we were stealing from you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a million ways to fuck up your marriage, so that's ten episodes a year right there. <laughs> and then another five from the news, and then, you know, seven recycled from Full House, and then you got a season. <laughs> Not that hard. <laughs> no, you guys, you guys are kind of pick full house dry. It's, it's, it's <laughs> yes, done. It's, it's done. Um, but you got what, Modern Family now to steal from, right? Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> what, uh, what is the room like on Castle? 
Uh, we, we have folks at different levels. We have some uh, co-executive producers whose job it is to steer and guide the room. Um, I have an executive producer partner whose job really is to oversee um, the writing while I'm doing all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I work with writing for probably a third of the day. The third of the day is post. The third of the day is prep. You know, at any one time, um, we have uh, uh, a story being broken, a story being outlined, a script being written, one in pre-production, one in production, one in post-production. And I have to be able to answer questions on all of those for all the departments. So um, it, it really is at the beginning of the season, it's kind of like row, row, row your boat with more rounds coming in and having to be on top of that. And without a great staff and without really good leadership, um, it, it, it's hard to accomplish. We have some folks in, in the, in the mid-level who I think are going to really be superstars watching their trajectory over the last couple of years, watching what they've learned, and watching them embrace the lessons um, has been great. You know, that they can really own their ship, their, their uh, scripts, and see them all the way through production. Uh, at this point, now they have that ability which is great for me because it's less work for me. Uh, you know, I don't have to look over their shoulders as much, and everybody is now kind of vested in the voice of the show. The first season was all about you know, kind of having to rewrite everything because I'm the one with the voice and nobody's quite mastered it yet, and it's, it's just a fact, and I think it's the case on every show. You know, um, most shows get off the ground because they're very specific, and they're popping in a way that, that is interesting to the audience because they haven't seen it before. But that's normally because it's one person's vision. And over time, you can give that vision out to people and they can invest in it, but it doesn't happen immediately. So th- there was a lot more of rewriting people over the initial um, first season and a half, two seasons. But now we're at the point where our mid-level guys are great. We have some lower-level staff who have a lot of promise. You know, They need a little bit of hand-holding. They need a little bit of guidance. But they're taking the lessons well. So at a certain point, just economically, you can't have all superstars. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to have people who are across, you know, across the spectrum, and you deal with it like a teaching hospital. That the <laughs> people who have more experience are helping the people who have less experience. Um, but the most important thing is to create a culture of teamwork, because everybody has strengths and weaknesses as a writer. Everybody has stuff that they're good at and stuff that they're not as good at. And if we're covering each other, if we're serving as our safety net, and we're doing it with um, as much generosity as we can then the stuff tends to end up really good. Part of the writer's room that doesn't get spoken about much, but something that... Is the smell. <laughs> it gets Those spoken about more than you think. To, need to open a window. <laughs> I was going to say the writer's assistants. <laughs> and, yeah, talk you know, about that for a minute and what kind of an opportunity that is. Too. Well, that's, that's what it's all about is the opportunity and the writer's assistants are there in the writer's rooms. We have two writer's rooms and so uh, we have a writer's assistant in each writer's room and there are a couple stories being broken at the same time usually in the two different rooms and the writer's assistants are there taking everything down that happens in that room all day every day and they're the ones that help everybody keep track of all of the ideas that have come out uh, do you have like one or two writers? We, have, we have two writer's assistants and yeah they I, the people on our show one odd thing is that they tended to have been fans of the show before they came aboard um, and so there is a lot of our show, when people are pitching, involves people just saying, we did that in season seven, we did that in season nine. Um, and the writer's assistants are like that, too. 
So, and we always find an excuse to say, like, well, this is sort of a, this is a show about hockey. I think we should watch all of season four. <laughs> so we end up, there are days that get lost to just watching shows and being like, wow, 1993 was a really good year for the show. <laughs> but, yeah, you do have this institutional burden. So, yeah, the writer's assistants are sort of like the wizards who, who guard the castle a little they bit. They really are. Yeah. They really are. They're the ones who keep our wiki together where we have all the facts of everything that's happened mm-hmm. to all the characters all along. And... Um, um, they are the people who are hoping to move up, and that's that's you know for a lot of people who are looking for a path, that's where a lot of the writers get started. Have you guys been able to give freelance episodes to your writers' assistants? Yes, that's great. Yeah, and same with our show too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm curious. We, we, about... we just staffed one of our writers' assistants oh, this great. past year. Yeah, nice. Um, I'm curious about before we get to audience questions, um, the ones that got away. Uh, Tim, I know you were just working on a pilot for HBO fairly recently, right? Fairly recently, and I'm still mourning. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> Tell us about that. It's funny. I mean, when I got to The Simpsons, I was just thrilled to be there, so I didn't even think about development for a while. But there was, but I saw a lot of people be like, I'm on The Simpsons. I'm one of the world's greatest writers. I'm going to go off and write a pilot. See you, suckers. And then they would sort of limp back. <laughs> and, or they'd go write a feature, and it wouldn't be as pleasurable as maybe writing for The Simpsons. And so I was always a little bit nervous about it, I just felt like, well, why would you go outside of this beautiful cocoon <laughs> that we live in? Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, was, I did a show uh, for HBO with Molly Shannon that was a great experience. But for some reason, I just sort of felt, well, of course it's not going to go. It's a pilot. Yeah. So, I mean, and when it eventually was, it, it, the process went along for a while, and then it didn't. And I was told, well, this isn't going to uh, happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I just sort of felt like, oh, well, I'll get them next time. Hmm. And maybe there was a day, maybe there was one night of heavy drinking or <laughs> heavier drinking. Um, but then you just go along, and, and, it, and it's like you guys said, this is not a business for people who can't handle rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just always felt like, yeah, I'll get them next time. That's, that's a great attitude to have. And the yeah, you have to have that attitude because yeah. you're not going to make it very far if you don't. Yeah. I mean, it is a numbers game. You can write something that's great, and it, it's just the wrong year for it because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, David Kelly has that show or Stephen Bochco has that show or Shonda Rhimes has that show, sure. and they're going to go with those guys instead of yours even if, it's, even if it's better. Or you get the wrong cast in it because the right person isn't available. Mm-hmm. We're extraordinarily lucky on Castle with the folks we have. If we had had different folks in a different year, we might not have made it past pilot. Um, but, you know, the, the goal is to be able to write something and get it out there. And writing pilots that don't go is part of the process. Right. And the story I've always heard is that David Chase had nine spec features, none of which got produced before he produced The Sopranos. And so, like, I've had two rejected, so I've got seven more to go before I become a TV legend. So <laughs> whatever. Just let's, let's get those out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. But that's kind of what I was going through before. Um... Yeah, you're not going to work too hard on those other seven, right? They're just, they're <laughs> not just, at they're all. They're pass-throughs. Get them done. Get them done. As long as the font is right. Right. That's okay. Before Castle happened is, you know, I was writing feature after feature, and they'd get bought, and I was making a good living, and they would get to this point where, oh, it's going to get made, and it has a star attack. And and um, all of that, and then they would fall apart, and it was like one right after the other, and you get invested, and then it, you just stop caring, and you just say, okay, next, <laughs> and I think that's what you have to do. It's Zen in the art of being a professional writer. Yeah, yeah, there there is a little bit of not caring, but that said, you have to care so much about the the thing it's, that you're it's making. It's the sand mandala that you know the monks make. <laughs> you know, they spend all that time making the beautiful mandala, and then they're done, and it all blows away. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, and even when you get something, even when you get something made, again, you get a weekend in features. You're done. 
Well, Andrew was a little brutal, jealous yeah. because I had a short film that did uh, the circuit, and I was follow- I was traveling with it for about a year, and he was he was like Air Force One got one weekend. You <laughs> like, are you know, getting <laughs> an entire year. <laughs> I, I went to the theaters in Santa Monica, and you know, ended up with like two jackass TV writers cracking jokes through the whole movie while I was watching it. <laughs> She's going from film festival to film festival, you know, in these sold-out houses giving her standing ovations every day. I'm like, it's <laughs> that's not fair. That's not fair. It was pretty, pretty gratifying. But then I got my residuals, and I rubbed them in her nose. That's right. And then she said, I'm married to you. I get half. I uh, do have questions from you guys. Um, my question is for Tim. Uh, you mentioned that you were working sort of under the table for Spy, and then uh, without explanation, you're suddenly working as a staff writer for Politically Incorrect. So I'm curious the process of getting working papers for working in America from Canada, and is it not sort of uh, detrimental, or would a network or a show consider not hiring you because of the process of having to go through all that legal rigmarole? Um, this is sort of, I'm talking about, everyone was a lot more relaxed about this before 9-11. <laughs> and you um, had your anchor baby. Go ahead. Admit <laughs> that's it. True. That's true. Um, yeah, it was a summer thing, so I don't think anybody was too concerned. And then I think um, I, between my two internships at SPY, I went and got a degree. I went to Columbia University for a little while. And back then, this is all ridiculous immigration business, so you can all go take a <laughs> We'll cut all break. this out. So yes. Take um, your time. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so you were allowed to work for like a year if you were Canadian. And then I, I just found that as things went along, you would get the job and then sort of like a week later be like, oh, by the way, I can't do this unless you write all these papers for me. So I just sort of uh, wouldn't tell them <laughs> until it was much too late. Um, but I think a lot of agencies arrange that kind of... I mean, there's so many Canadian comedy writers and Canadian television writers, and I believe that if you can get an agency to represent you, they tend to take care of that stuff. But it, but it is tougher now. Um, you know, I know at Disney it's, it, it, it is sometimes an issue when we want to bring somebody on because they have to bear the cost of, of doing whatever needs to be done. So um, I just know it's a much more challenging after 9-11. I'm interested in uh, character development. And what is the reason for reversion of a character? Reversion of a character? Yes. You have already explained in one part of your story that you've created a a mosaic of all the experiences of this person, and then all of a sudden it just reverts back to the original part of the story Mm -hmm. where they were a certain type of person. Oftentimes that can become that can come because of uh, something happens to the character that's emotional. You know, they've taken a, a hit, and so they, they go back to uh, a way of being. Sometimes they're acting out. Um, you know, and that's that's when you have characters who change. Uh, you know, I think on The Simpsons, it's a, a struggle to keep them from not changing. I mean, the show the, the characters have sort of changed. I mean, Homer was not as dumb at the beginning of the show, and he spoke with sort of this Walter Matthau voice, and then gradually Dan Castellaneta. kind of changed the voice a little bit so that it's the way it is now. And and it's been a struggle the whole time I've been there to make him not too stupid. Yeah. The rule has always been he can't be... He can't not know his own name. (laughs) And then I remember one long philosophical discussion where we decided that Homer could not be dumber than a dog. (laughs) And then the question became, what kind of dog? (laughs) 
but it, but if you take a look at something like Cheers, you know, uh, Sam Malone, who's off the bottle, isn't isn't womanizing. You know, he goes through this relationship with Diane. They break up, and then suddenly, you know, he's he's a booze hound, and he's showing up with you know all these. You know, a, a, a woman on each arm, and he's you know betting everybody in Boston. It's because of that emotional blow. So, so I think I think when you have character reversion, it's that there's a trigger incident in their life that they're reacting to, uh, and then you know the question is, who are they at their core? Mm-hmm. Well, how important is that? The uh, it's like an in a, in a eight. story. How long do you do a reversion? Mm, the, it depends on what you're arcing out and what you're aiming for. <laughs> Let's. I, I'm actually curious about that on on Castle these past couple of years. How, do you guys sit down? Do you arc a season? Uh, do you? How specific do you get on episodes? Uh, what do you look at as far as tent we, poles? We, we we generally try to. You know, at the um, at the beginning of the year, we kind of know where we're going to end up. Um, you make a bunch of plans and then you alter them along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you throw out a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but we do have these um, hallmark moments along the way that we know that we're going to hit. When we came into the season, we had probably the first eight or ten episodes of a pretty clear idea of what those were going to be. And then um, with what the characters asked us for, we started feeling our way through. And given where we're going um, at the end of the season and, and what we know that other folks don't know, you know, we've made decisions along the way in terms of how we want to deal with certain relationships mm-hmm. um, that are, are key relationships in the series. Uh, and, and then the question is, you know, next season, what are we going to aim for? The decisions we make, are they going to fundamentally change, you know, things? Are things going to be basically the same? Um, Do you know where the series is going to end ultimately? Uh, After 15 years. <laughs> What's the dream? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the dream is. <laughs> dream is episode 500. Right. I, I, I mean, you know, look, w- when you're dealing with relationships, relationships are complex, and there's no shortage of storytelling in any relationship. As, as you've said with uh, Homer and Marge, there they're, they're ten way, you know, ten, a million ways to fuck up a, a marriage, and you, know, you can do ten of them a season. So, so we know we have that. Um, is there an ultimate goal? Well, it depends on how long we run. I mean, I know how far I want to take these characters, but is there somebody else out there who's going to come along, or is there somebody on my staff who can see beyond that? And I think that that's the hope, um, that, that you can keep something going, and that the characters are interesting enough to sustain that. But then there's some shows that you watch where, okay, the graceful exit is, you know, after seven or eight years, you've sort of done everything you want to with those characters. You've explored them. Um, and, you know, the virtue that you guys have on The Simpsons is that Bart and Lisa never grow up. You know, Homer never gets older. Um, so there's, there's a template there that you can keep going back to over and over again that uh, in, in uh, procedural drama, I don't know that you have the luxury of. Because we're a bizarre hybrid of a procedural drama yeah. and um, a character relationship show. Uh, and if you're just law and order you can sort of rotate people out and do all the same stories again with different points of view because you now have new people in it to react differently. But for us, we know we live and die based upon the growth of a, a central relationship. And along the way, we have to solve murders. So we have, that, <laughs> we have that onus as well to keep doing that really, really well and to do it in a way that maintains interest. So, you know, for instance, if, if, if Castle and Beckett were to ever get together, you were saying that, you know, uh, that's the point of Moonlighting that fell apart. They actually did that in episode 33, and it ran for 66 episodes. <laughs> um, it sort of fell apart because they couldn't make their air dates and stuff like right. that. 
there may be a way to have a show where the two characters are together? Oh, I certainly think there is. Yeah. And so, it, and in fact, I think that's sort of a lazy critical thought. Sometimes yeah. they say, "Oh, as soon as the characters get together, we're not going to watch anymore." Cause so, so, but then what happens when they get together? I mean, you know, we've gotten together in relationships uh, in life, and you know, it, it hasn't necessarily gone smoothly. It's been great at some sure. times, it's been difficult at some times. You break up, you get back together again. You know, in terms of our show, I think that there's a trajectory for these two characters that we feel really good about. We just have to keep thinking of crazy murders to keep them <laughs> invested in along the way. And, you know, we have our own struggles because, you know, our character, Alexis, she's growing up now. You know, she's 18 and she's going to go off to college. How the hell are we going to handle that? You know, there are real challenges that are in front of you. But those challenges mean that there is good story that you can start mining from that. Um, so I, I forget what the question was. It was something about how Tim got started in the business. Something like that. <laughs> I, but I feel like, and especially lately, this will they or won't they question has been so present among the audience, and maybe it's because I'm only recently aware of it, but um, is this a constant conversation in the room? And I have a follow-up question for you. Um, it's not as constant uh, a conversation in the room as it is in the Twitter universe because we know what's going to happen. <laughs> but is there, is there a tension? I mean, ultimately, you're the boss and, you know, you're the way you want the story to go goes. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's still a collaborative medium. You know, do you guys have to ask yourselves how far to push? When is the time to make the right move? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I, I think that we're all kind of in lockstep as to how we're feeling about the relationship. That's right. You know, um, so so I, I don't think that there's been a, a lot of push. Look, you know, I think there was more push third season with a couple of the writers who were like, get them together already. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute. We're not even close to that point. We still have a lot of story to go through. But then when you get to um, episode 81 and you feel like you're repeating beats, then you have to start to think, okay, how do we push this in, 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 a new, um, in a new direction? Is there something that we can do? Is that the right move? Is there another move that's more interesting? You know, the show's called Castle. Do you move Beckett off? Do you bring somebody else in? And we have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I will watch the shit out of that show. <laughs> I'm in. I, my TiVo's set already. <laughs> Um, uh, sort of a similar question, Tim, and, and it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's sort of related to the Homer can't be dumber than a dog question, and we haven't really gotten to talk about this with other Simpsons writers. Is there a question among the people in the room about whether you guys are pushing the characters too far or not far enough? You know, how do you guys know where that line is? Well, I mean, I think that you sort of have to feel it out every day. And, and I, I, you know, I'm sure we've made one or two mistakes over the course of 22 years where we haven't calibrated it perfectly. But, um, you know, I feel like James L. Brooks is around so much. And every year we have these story pitch. Well, they call them retreats because when the show started, I believe they did retreats. And they, they all went to Hawaii and pitched stories. <laughs> And then they went to Aspen one year, and then the next year it was the low Santa Monica, and now it's a small basement at Fox. It's just sort of a, ref- a reflection of the, the economics of television, I guess. Um, but no, he, 22 years. Somebody should be really, really rich enough to fly you guys to Hawaii. It is not me. Somebody. Um, it's somebody with the name of Murdoch, but it's not me. Um, and so we have these sort of these story retreat days where it happened this year, and, and 
Mr. Brooks and Mr. Greening and a bunch of the other people were there, and we all had to come there with uh, with fully beat out stories that you know took about twenty to twenty five minutes to pitch, pretty much the length of an actual show. And and it's funny because you have a bunch of guys you've seen act like assholes all year and have drive fancy cars, then as soon as soon as Jim Brooks comes in, it's like, and then Homer comes into the room, and it's, it becomes a very sort of nerve wracking exam scenario where you're, you're pitching these show ideas to the people who started the show and and who have won a lot of awards for it. Um, but the great thing is that um, Brooks and Graining and some of these other people have been there forever. They really want your pitch to work. And they really, I'm sure, it sounds like you do the same thing. You really want to mine that nugget of gold from that giant pile of shit you just put in front of them. Um, and so they'll be like, okay, that was interesting. Okay, but I like that thing in the first act. Let's talk more about that. I, the second act didn't work for me at all, but maybe we can go in another direction from what you said. And so, and, and that's really always the thing that Jim Brooks always looks at. He'll often sort of catch a short by saying things like, you know, we got to remember that Lisa is eight years old. Because we're pitching stories where she's like, you know, outfoxing Vladimir Putin and flying to space. And, and, and he'll be like, we've got to remember that this is a middle class family in an American town. You know, they're probably not going to crack cold fusion, which is sort of the way a lot of the wackier writers want to go. And I, you know, I, can, I include myself in that sometimes. And so there is a, there is a constant vigilance about that, that we don't always, at least in, in terms of the skeleton of the story. I mean, I, I think the best Simpson stories are stories where you can tell it, and it doesn't. You it could it doesn't necessarily have to be a cartoon. It's like uh, Bart shoplifted, and so Marge is upset, and we're gonna and and you could tell that story on any show, but then we try to do it in our own way. And within the show, within the framework of that simple story, we can have crazy flashbacks and we can do crazy things, um, but we try to keep it real. Mm-hmm. That's great. What, what what I love about The Simpsons is that. It seems like you guys go out of your way to subvert expectation. You know, that you have your convention and you guys are sitting there thinking, okay, you know, um, Homer and, and Ned are going to, you know, they, they need uniforms, so they're going to take these two guys, pull them in the closet, and take their uniforms. <laughs> and then they do that, and the two guys beat Homer and Ned up and walk out of the yeah, closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love that every, every writing convention, it seems like you've, you've found a way to take it and turn it on its head and make it completely original. And that's something that you know, I, I, I have admired about the show for the first 12 years, and then I sort of lost track. <laughs> I, I understand that you're still on TV, but I can't Me too. I up. came aboard on season 13, <laughs> and I kind of lost track too. <laughs> no, but, but it really is something to aspire to because yeah. um, you know, one of the things that, that, that we're trying to do is keep our audience guessing, but but to keep them guessing in a fair way, which is really hard to do on procedurals because inevitably you're going to have you know four or five suspects and 20% of your audience is going to go on Twitter and say, I knew it, because statistically <laughs> you, you, uh, that's an interesting they question. just you, sort of pick do you, one. <laughs> do you find yourself bedeviled by the internet? Is there, do you have a sense? Do you go online and check what, see what people are saying? And Do you it, want to admit to it? <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, I, I look in on the conversation because, again, we know where in the season we want our audience to be really frustrated and we know where in the season we want our audience to feel really fulfilled. So I just want to gauge their level of anger to make sure it's appropriate to where I, 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 I need it that's to a, be. That's a good point, and I think that it is valuable to look at what people – I mean, there is a conversation about your show happening online, so I yeah. think you'd sort of be crazy to just ignore it. But you also have to realize that maybe they're not a totally representative sample of your audience. That's absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct that the people who are the most vocal are the ones who are most invested. 
Um, so they are not an accurate statistical sample because we know that there are people who just show up and you know they don't care about Castle and Beckett. It's like okay, what's what's on? This is pleasant. Let's let's solve a crime. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then there are the people who are really invested, and you know, so and they're so both. We, I mean, they both we show up in the Nielsen, so you have to take them into account. But 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 I, I I'm sort of trying to go the other way from from what. Jim Brooks is doing, but but I have that Jim Brooks voice in my head. It's okay. How do we do this and make it grounded? I want to do the show where it's you know where Castle and Beckett are investing investigating a murder, and it seems like it was done by aliens. <laughs> <laughs> How do I make that credible? Okay, right. you know we want to do zombies. How do we make that credible? So it's it's kind of you know the challenge because. The bread and butter of all the other procedural shows are, you know, the 10-year-old girl who, who shows up dead in the alley, and that's not what we want to do. We want to have some of the fun stuff, but it's always how do you bring it back down to earth? And do you find yourself sort of like subtly making fun of those shows? Are you sort of like, I mean, thinking about those other shows and sort of like <laughs> taking a dig at them ever? You, you know, we did that our, our first season or two, but then, it, but then life just got too hard. And look, they're, <laughs> God bless them. They're billion-dollar franchises that people love, and they, they watch them, so... You know, you can't make fun of them too much. We're just a different show. You know, we're a different kind of show on a different network. We're much more character-oriented. Um, do we think we're a better show? Of course, but that's because we're arrogant assholes. Yeah, you'd have to think but, that to get up in the morning. But, yeah. but, but that being said, you know, um, how many CSIs have been on? That, that, that show's been on... You know, if you, yeah. yeah, and if you, if you take all of them together, probably, probably 500 episodes of, of that. So, you know, that is a remarkable achievement. Um, in, 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 in any book. So, you know, yeah, sometimes we poke fun, but we also know that, that, that audiences are responding to that for a reason. Yeah. If you were having to start again as an unknown and you had, say, a one-page essay to express why your unique voice was important and necessary for the room, what are the things from your life that you would highlight? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <The> college essay time. <laughs> That, that is an interesting question, and we have actually talked about this uh, when Dana was here, about The Simpsons specifically. You know, it is such a huge show, such a long-running show. What can you bring of yourself to it? Well, I find that the best stories that people pitch, and certainly the stuff I'm most proud of, is the stuff that's unique to me. Like, you know, I joked about how, like, it felt like there were a bunch of Harvard, Harvard Lampoon guys in the writer's room, and I, you know, I'm not of that type of person like I grew up in a small town and my dad was a farm implement dealer and I would often get blizzarded in and, and I feel like I've got a few stories to tell that maybe no one else can come up with so I mean I think there's sort of a delusion you have to work under which is that you have things to say that no one else does and that is so not true but you've <laughs> got to believe it and so and, and you know I've, I've often found that the stories that come I don't know this may not apply to you because I don't know how many murders you've been involved with personally <laughs> But, yeah, just, like, little tiny stories that have happened in your life. It's amazing how many you can translate, and, and no one can take that away from you. Well, I think that's part of what comes out of the writer's room is that, you know, the stories are built, like you said before, out of our personal experiences. And, you know, when you're dealing with murder, one of the most fun things is, who would I like to kill this week? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you have that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can imagine all the ways in which you might murder them. Right. Or they might be appropriately murdered. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is in ter about your question is that it's all about you because it's – it's all about the specific voice that you bring to something that's going to make something spark or shine. 
So um, if you were to write a one-page essay about your experiences, it would be about, like, Tim said, your specific experiences coming up in life. When I wrote the script that won the Nickel Fellowship, I was going through a divorce. So um, it was very much about what it's like to be on your own for the first time in your life. And whether you go back and you lean on somebody who you need or you take off and take a risk and be on your own, that mattered to me more than anything in the world at the time. So that would be the thing is that... um, I would say, you need me because I'm the one that cares more than anybody else in the world about this right now, and I have a very specific point of view on it. And that's, that's what's important. Those are the characters that read in the stories, too. Uh, Andrew, you said you went in to pitch ABC with five different pitches. Did they have a common thread? What is it uh, that you bring to these stories? Well, the common thread were, were they were all things I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. Uh, interested in the world, interested in learning. Um, I love the steep learning curve. uh, And one of the reasons why I've enjoyed the showrunner trajectory is that it's a very steep learning curve, Mm -hmm. and it's been a lot of fun. Um, But I would have written any of those other things with a great deal of passion, and they're still on my list. Um, Any common element? Characters that I was interested in. Predicaments I was interested in. um, Conflicts I was interested in. I, I, I think that, you know, if, if th- th- there are two questions you kind of have to ask. It's like, why do audiences want to see this? Because you can have something that you're interested in that nobody else cares about. But why do you want to write it? And you have to be able to answer both of those. And if one of those is missing, you kind of got nothing. Um, because if, if you want to write about it but nobody wants to see it, it's self-indulgent. And um, I, I think that we've all seen, written, or read those scripts. Um, and if people want to see it but you don't really care, well, we've all seen those movies too. You really need both of those. You really need that passion. And you, you really need that desire to connect with an audience. Hi, guys. Um, it's long been said that the hardest script to do is the spec script for the writer. Um, and so... As a writer, uh, many times curled up in the corner in the fetal position wondering what the act break is, uh, are there times since you guys have the benefit of the room where you will just kind of go, uh, I'll let the room do it, blah, 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 okay, here you go, room, figure it out. I, I think that that is a real risk um, that people fall into, and that, that is something I would never do. I feel like even if I'm not sure about how to like do the second act break or whatever, I will really give it my all, even though I know that the room will likely change it. And you will see scripts where people have sort of punted from page 15 to page 20 because they're like, ah, because it's such a strong room. Um, but it's really transparent that they've done it, and it's a terrible idea. Well, the, the, our scripts don't get written in the room. The stories get broken in the room. So people have support, they have help, and then they go off and do it um, themselves. And they'll struggle with a problem. And They'll struggle first, and then if, if they're having difficulty, they'll bring it to somebody else to see if they can work it out. Um, oh, can I, let me just interrupt for a sec. How thorough are those room breaks, and how much room is there for invention on the writers? Pretty thorough, but we like to make sure that the person who's writing it has a sense of ownership over it. But it's uh, you know pretty much here's the scene, here's what happens in the scene. Um, ABC is tough because it's a six-act structure, so we have to ramp out to an act out every you know four or five minutes. It seems crazy. It does get shorter every year. Yeah. Um, so, oh, what was the question? <laughs> so, so, the, so the question really is: um, 
do we punt on it? I think people struggle, and they try to land it. And everybody there has professional pride, and they, they want to land it. They don't want to go to somebody else, but it's there for them if they need it. But nobody is abdicating their responsibility. I, I find that on our show, the most stressful time during the writing process isn't the night it airs. I sometimes don't even realize, oh, it was my show tonight. I didn't even realize that. The most stressful time is when I finish the script and there's a stack of them in the writer's room and everyone takes one to read it. And, yeah. you know, the 12 people I, that I sometimes hate but mostly love but totally respect as writers are going off to their respective offices to read it. That is a nerve-wracking time because that thing and has my name you. on it. Yeah, they They're judge going you. to judge you. Yeah. But we also have a, a culture on Castle where um, everybody is supporting everybody else. So if you get to that point, you don't have to curl up in a fetal position. You can go to somebody and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can we talk about it? And that's, that's a really great thing. I think that um, when you're on your own writing a spec feature at home, that's when it gets a little more difficult because all you've got sure. is you. And, but you also um, have as much time as you want. Also, but also, and hopefully you have good friends. Good friends. You, the thing about uh, doing that when you're writing a feature is having somebody that you can trust who will give you input that's generous and um, honest. Yeah, uh, I think this will be our last question. Do the actors ever get a chance to give input into the stories for the season as far as how they would like to see the characters go and how much... Um, Advance notice do they have of what's going on for the character when an episode is being filmed? I'll let you answer that. You. <laughs> you. Our, our actors are thoroughly involved. I mean, the, act, <laughs> the, the actors are, are, you know, have all been on, at The Simpsons, have been on the show since the beginning. So uh, Dan Castellaneta has actually written a couple of scripts in the last few years, and, and he's fantastic. Um, and also, when we're recording the show, all of the actors are encouraged to ad lib which for a writer can be initially off-putting because you've spent weeks and weeks writing a script and then they're just making shit up. Uh, but then you realize, wow, Hank Azaria is really good at that and Julie Kavner is really good at that and Harry Shearer is great. And so, yeah, we try to give them a sense of ownership as much as the writers. Yeah, these guys are living... I'm, I'm sorry, Terry, go That's ahead. Okay. I was going to say that um, probably the same thing that, for example... John Huertas and Seamus Dever, they, they love their characters. They're passionate about them, and they think about them all the time. This applies to all of the actors. They'll all come to us and say, I was thinking about this idea for my character, and maybe they could do this, and they come up with whole storylines, or they come up with ideas for an episode. But the wonderful thing about them is they're always thinking, and they're always thinking about a way to make things better. So, of course you want to listen to that. Yeah, because we have to spend time thinking about all the characters, and they're focused on their characters. And uh, especially the secondary characters, you know, in their in, in their minds, you know, they're the hero of of their journey, and and not necessarily in a bad way. Sometimes, but mostly not not in a bad way. They've really thought about it, um, and we get great input from them. We get great input from Stana and Nathan. Uh, Nathan is a really great ad libber. He'll give us a line or two, but he'll always give us the way it was written. But he'll give us some options. Uh, and sometimes he comes up with really great buttons for scenes. So you'd be crazy not to take good stuff, no matter where it comes from. Uh, and sometimes, you know, Stan will call up with a crazy pitch, but there'll be something, you know, inside it that's really interesting that's worth talking about. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's worth taking the input because these guys live with the characters. Uh, very quickly, and we'll start with Andrew and come down. What are you watching on television? What are you getting excited about? What are you inspired by? What is your room talking about? Uh, our room is talking a little too much about the Vampire Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Um, 
I, I'm like a you know Colbert, John Stewart guy, uh, and then um, Game of Thrones. Uh, I'll watch Shameless when Terry's watching it. <laughs> Although I don't need to see Bill Macy's ass again. <laughs> I like Bill Macy. I just don't want Absolutely. to see this. Um, there's one of the interesting observations about TV is that I think we're living in the second great golden age because TV has had to become better to compete. There are too many niche programs. There, there's too much stuff out there for it to compete with internet and um, gaming that it has to be really good. And the average level of a procedural now versus what it was when Macmillan and Wife was on <laughs> is remarkable. The amount of moves, remarkable. The sophistication of the writing, it's, it's incredible. It's funny you should say that. Not that long ago, and I'm, it, it sounds sort of pathetic, I was watching a Barnaby Jones at 2 in the morning, <laughs> and, and I was shocked to find that Buddy Epson, he was going to investigate some crime. He drove up to the house, got out of his car, walked all the way around the car, and then up the walk. It must have taken about 40 seconds of shoe leather, and that would never happen now. It must I know, we're, we're doing more in 42 minutes than they dreamed of in 48 minutes. But some of them are, you know, so, some of them hold up. Some of them do hold up, but, uh, but a lot of them. Columbo's them, hold up, I think. No, Columbo's. <laughs> I love Columbo. The character holds up. The character holds up, but, but the actual show, it's yeah. paint dry. Well, they don't do oh it as much. I, sometimes I say, why were are we two hours so long. hard to make this make sense? <laughs> <laughs> and you know who the guy is because they show you in the beginning. You're like, just arrest him. <laughs> No, but there's there, there's really fun stuff on TV. I'm I'm watching you know Modern Family. Um, uh, what else do we watch? I, he, I actually, he, he does I, actually, not watch Grey's Anatomy with me. No, he will. I, I leave the room. <laughs> he leaves the room. I leave the room. I, I actually like Supernatural. It's one of my guilty pleasures. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a fun show. Uh, we watched this great fishing show the other day. <laughs> I did not see this coming. What? <laughs> What great fishing show? It was, what, do you remember what it was? It was, it was, it was River Monsters. Yes. Oh, yeah. River Monsters. Oh, great. so cool. Yeah. That's not a so fishing cool. show. Yes. <laughs> uh, Terry, what else are you watching besides Grey's well, Anatomy you know, and River Monsters? Well, <laughs> I, I'm a huge, like I said, sci fi fan. I love Game of Thrones mm. and fantasy and um, oh my God, Shameless. At the, at the beginning of the year, uh, uh, Terry went through all of Battlestar Galactica. I did. Oh, oh that's, uh, like, that's the way to back do it. to back. <laughs> Like that she was an addict. The, the first one with Lauren Green, I assume. <laughs> I couldn't believe the writing in that show. It yeah. was just the so most good. amazing yeah. show. Just uh, what, is there more sci-fi and fantasy on that, that you're watching? I can't even think of any. Well, but I also don't Once watch Upon it. A Time. Yeah, um, I love Once right. Upon a Time. I love the whole fairy tale renaissance. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested to see what's coming up with all these new pilots. Because yeah, there's, there's all kinds of interesting things in the yeah. fantasy genre. Um, what else? Fantasy. Uh, mostly stuff I've been reading, like The Hunger Games, which I loved. I've never heard of it. <laughs> Tim, what are you watching? And, and The Simpsons. Uh, Big fan. Right, Big right. fan. <laughs> well, that should go with that. Hopefully that goes without saying. Well, The Simpsons uh, is a staple. Well, um, Mad Men... Is a huge thing. I, if, I find that the things that people in the Simpsons room get obsessed with are not comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, Mad Men's a huge thing. In fact, I know it's 
kind of a responsibility for me to watch this tonight because otherwise I'm going to just have to keep leaving the room tomorrow <laughs> while people are talking about it. Um, but what did you think of that first episode? I thought it was kind oh, of a... God, it meandered. I thought it was... It was long, right? What was that about? It was... I just... I, I have a lot of faith in them. I've enjoyed the show so much that I feel like, okay, some great stuff is being set up here. Um, for some reason, there's a certain kind of com- goofy comedy writer who loves The Wire. Like, The Wire became an obsession in this, at The Simpsons for a long time. Um, and for that reason, I sort of resisted watching it um, and then started watching it and thought, okay, this is great. Um, Breaking Bad is another thing that The Simpsons I became I just watched a all of Breaking Bad. I just started, and it's, it is great. It's, it's good. Great. Yeah. 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 Are you guys watching Justified? No. Oh, what are I you waiting for? People are, there's so many I'm shows. I'm waiting to get off Castle, <laughs> so I have some free time. You get two weeks and a couple of weeks. Go watch Justin. Because I'm, I'm actually a big Tim Oliphant fan. I loved him in Deadwood. Yeah. I love Deadwood. So yeah. great. Yeah, it's terrific. It is the best show going on right now. But Sorry, Mad Men. Are you recommending Justified? Do you think it's amazing? I recommend it 100%. There's too many yeah. good shows, you know? Like, especially with Breaking Bad, I was told, oh, you have to watch this show. You have to watch 40 hours of this show. And with The Wire... The thing that initially made me very resistant was people were saying, oh, you won't get into it until the middle of season three, but it's so <laughs> worth it. And I was like, what? I, am I never going to die? Is, is, is time infinite? And so I was really resistant to it, and that was almost exactly my experience. It's the greatest show ever, but it took me 25 hours of time for me to realize it was the greatest show ever. Worth it. I've worth only got it. so many of those in my lifetime. <laughs> this is the way to use them, yes. watching The Wire. Uh, please thank Tim Long... Terry Miller and Andrew Marlowe, everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, 826LA, uh, Dan Byrne for writing our theme song. Now leaving Nerdist.com.